Good morning, everyone. We're going to continue our series we've called Temple Talks. Uh, you, you may not get the reference to the title of this sermon series, but um, since we just hit the anniversary of the Reformation, uh, and since I'm relatively fond personally of Martin Luther, uh, he had a series, uh, uh, a series of dinner conversations that his friends recorded and published called Table Talks. Uh, and they were, they were just Luther and friends discussing all sorts of issues. And in the same way, what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark right now is we're looking at this occasion in the last week leading up to the crucifixion where Jesus' public ministry is kind of coming to its height. Uh, and specifically, he's being interrogated by the religious leaders. The intention of those religious leaders is most of the time um, not good. They are trying to trap Jesus in his words. They're trying to reveal him for being a heretic or to turn the people against him. But it also means that we find Jesus talking about the big issues of life uh, in a public and in oftentimes a surprising way. And so last week we looked at Jesus talking about government. Um, we'll see as Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. We'll see as Jesus talks about himself. But today... We're going to look at Jesus' discussion about the resurrection, about the Christian view of the afterlife, about life after death. And so uh, if you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it up to Mark chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you'll find one in the back of the pew uh, nearby. And you can use the index in the front to find the New Testament gospel of Mark. And again, we're in chapter 12. We're going to pick up in Mark 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, the concerns of this passage, the Sadducees in particular, their question can seem distant, can seem uh, unapplicable to our lives, can seem ancient and irrelevant. But really, Lord, there are uh, things here for us this morning, and we stand on the promise that your word makes that all scripture 
is profitable and beneficial for teaching and correction, for instruction in righteousness and the equipping of the man or woman of God for every good work. And so we stand on that promise this morning. We ask that it would be proven true that you would come by your spirit and teach us this morning and that you would help us to see what we cannot see as Jesus speaks of what is to come. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're introduced here to a character, a group of people in first century Jewish world uh, that we haven't really run into very often in in the Gospel of Mark. They're known as the Sadducees. We've encountered over and over again the Pharisees. These are the ones who were committed to keeping the Old Testament law as they understood it, keeping themselves separate from any cultural perversion and maintaining a faithful walk with Jesus. We've seen that they are tremendously self-righteous, that they bred an understanding of a group of, uh, of untouchables, of undesirables, of those who had no business with God, Uh, and that they also bred a horrible habit of hypocrisy, of being righteous on the outside and standing on that righteousness like a big public badge of honor and yet dealing with the same sinful issues we all do on the inside. But the Sadducees were different. Uh, The Sadducees uh, were a group, a minority group of people in, uh, in Judaism who only held to the first five books of our Old Testament, the books of Moses or the Pentateuch, the Torah. They denied the scriptural authority of the rest of the Old Testament, the history books like Joshua, the prophets like Isaiah, uh, the wisdom and poetry like Psalms and Ecclesiastes. All of that they set aside. And because of that, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed that the soul died with the body. When you died, they didn't believe in a spiritual realm, no angels, no demons, no nothing like that. Um, And so in that sense, they are somewhat comparable to to those today who... um, who are more liberal in their theology, who are more progressive, who have created what we sometimes call a canon within the canon and have elevated a part of the Bible as saying, this is authoritative, the rest is not, okay? Um, But ultimately, they saw themselves as being the intellectual Jew, the ones who didn't get caught up in all of the silly Uh, and superstitious ideas of their people, but actually had a right and proper uh, civilized understanding of their religion. And so (laughs) I remember remember seeing an ad for a church years and years ago, and it was just a video, and at the end of it, flashing on the screen was no weird stuff, and I've never forgotten it. That that would have appealed to the Sadducees. They they wanted their Jewish tradition, but none of that weird stuff. None of that spiritual stuff, just good ethical living. And so they come here and they come to question Jesus. And just like we saw with the Pharisees and the Herodians last week, their intentions here uh, are not to be taught. They, they want to vet Jesus' views as a teacher, but they want to do more than that. They already know that Jesus believes in an afterlife, believes in a resurrection. His teachings are full of talking about heaven and hell, eternal destiny. Um, So they come to him, 
And as it says here in verse 18, they say that there is no resurrection and they come with a well-scripted hypothetical question. And have no doubt here, the reason they come with this particular well-scripted hypothetical question is because it makes the belief in an afterlife seem silly, okay? And more importantly, incongruent with the commandments that Moses has given. Remember, their Bible was just the books of Moses. And so uh, they come and they've created a hypothetical question that they don't think can be answered if you hold a position that there's any form of afterlife. Okay. Now again, I don't find the Sadducees to be that foreign. I've had these conversations before with people who find themselves too intellectual with a particular teaching of the Bible and have come up with a hypothetical. Something that makes a belief like this seem silly. It is human nature for us to come up uh, with rhetorical questions that mock things we think aren't worth our intelligence. But that's what the Sadducees are doing here with Jesus. Now, to understand the story that they tell, you have to understand a, a, a unique part of the Old Testament law. You see, for the Jews, all of God's promises, all of his blessings were bound up in your legacy, in your genealogy, in your children and their children and their children's children and your descendants. Okay? Israel's blessings were bound to the, law, uh, to the land, and the land was given to your family. And then it was passed on to your children. It wasn't bought and sold like our real estate market today. It was part of the inheritance of being a Jew that you had a place and a parcel in the land. Okay? And so because of that, because God's promises were future-oriented, there was what we sometimes call the leveret law. And leveret is just Latin for brother-in-law. Okay? The leveret law was set up so that if a man did not have a child and died that a child would be raised up in his name, on his behalf, to continue the legacy, okay? And so, if he had a brother, and that brother was not currently married, and that brother was willing, he would take his, uh, you know, his brother's widow, and the first child that they had together would take the name of his brother and raise up his family line on his behalf. Uh, so it is, it's very distant, it's very hard for us to understand, but it's not really the point this morning. The point in the question is, what if this happened with a woman and seven brothers? Okay. What if we spiral this law out to its most unlikely, but also most pressing case, and then ask the big ticket question about what happens after death? Okay. And so with that in mind, let's read it through again, verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. There were seven brothers. This is where the hypothetical begins. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. That means the leveret law applies, right? And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also died, okay? And so what we see here is the law is employed six times from a family of seven brothers. None of them raise any children, and all of them die. And then lastly, the woman dies. And so we have eight people, if you will, using kind of a colloquialism, standing at the gates of heaven. And the question is, which ones are still married, right? Whose wife is this woman? 
Okay. Now notice, they've been pretty smart here, because if any one of them had had a son, maybe he'd have an edge. But none of them do. Just seven brothers, no children, one wife. Whose wife will they be? Now, remember, the Old Testament law maintains, even though we find polygamy, the practice of one man having multiple lives, the Old Testament law maintains that God's design for human marriage is monogamous. Okay. And so the question they're asking is, how can you be compatible with the law and create this situation that isn't compatible? How can the final state involve a polygamous relationship? But recognize, again, as they ask this final question, they do it with a coy smile. Right? It's like, you know, when Cheech and Chong ask, can God make a burrito so hot even he could not eat it, right? It's an intentionally designed question to show, again, the silliness of this belief and specifically the incompatibleness of a belief in an afterlife and the belief in the value and truth and commandments of the Old Testament law. And so their hope here is either that Jesus will downplay monogamy, or abandon this foolish belief in something after death. Okay. And as is always the case, when Jesus responds, whenever he's presented with an either-or, he takes a completely different tact. In fact, he doesn't really answer their question at all. He questions their question. He says, you're, you're just wrong. Okay? And this is the thing about questions, by the way. Not all questions are equal. Okay? There is such a thing as a bad question. Okay? There are questions that won't garner good answers. At the very least, maybe some of you are teachers and you're bothered by that because it's, it's a classic way of talking and encouraging kids to ask their questions. It's, there's no bad questions, but there really are. Okay? <laughs> but at the very least, agree with me this morning that better questions lead to better answers. But again... The problem with the Sadducees is they already have their answer. They've already shut the door. The one thing the Sadducees don't believe is the one thing that Jesus says. They believe they're right. And Jesus says, but what if you're wrong? In fact, he says more than that. He doesn't ask if they're wrong. He says, you're wrong, and let me tell you why. Okay. Now, again, we talked a few weeks ago about confrontational Jesus, about the Jesus who overturns tables and drives the money changers out and challenges the status quo and how much we need that in our lives. You know, just to summarize again, G.K. Chesterton says, although we often want a religion that agrees with where we're right, what we need is a religion that tells us where we're wrong, right? So confrontational Jesus is a good thing, especially when confrontational Jesus is the same Jesus who went on to die for our sins and for our rebellions and make a way for us to come back. Didn't wait for us to own up and confess our sins, but paid the, the cost of it first, okay? Um, in the same way here, we should value the Jesus who corrects our theology. We should value the Jesus who says, you're wrong, okay? Now, I don't know of an age in time where we had more of an existential crisis with being wrong than now, okay? And so this can be a challenge. And again, remember, the Sadducees are intellectuals. They believe that they're the only ones smart enough to see the silliness of this doctrine. Okay. But notice what else Jesus says. 
He says here in verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? He says you're wrong for two reasons. He says, haven't you gone astray? Haven't you asked the wrong question? Because you've missed two major components. And the two he points to, let's take the power of God first. Okay. Is, is the issue of resurrection that this is something that God just cannot do? Is it an impossibility for him? Remember, the Sadducees believe in the books of Moses, which includes the creation of all that we have out of nothing. And after the creation of those things, the breathing of life into non-life, right? As Adam is formed out of the ground and then God breathes into him and he becomes a living being. But ultimately, he says, you haven't left room in the equation for the one true constant of theology, which is the powerful God. The first question he says is, is God not capable of raising the dead? Is God not capable? But there's a correlation here, and that's you know not the scriptures. Now, I find that those two together cover a whole lot of ground when we wrestle with questions. I think Jesus, much more than we would be comfortable with, would say the same thing to us this morning. Don't you go wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, I want to point out to you here Uh, that Jesus starts with these two places, and one of them is the authority of Scripture. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't press in and go, you don't know the Scriptures because you deny the value of Daniel, or the significance of Job, or the words of Isaiah. When he finally does get to expositing Scripture, to explaining what the Bible says, he goes to Exodus, one of those books of Moses. But the thing is, there... It wasn't their canon, their scripture that shaped their theology. It was their theology that limited their canon. They didn't come and go, well, these are the only books we can trust. What do they say? And then shape their beliefs. They said, these beliefs are intolerable to us intellectually. So how can we find an authoritative scripture that fits what we already believe? And so they threw out the rest of the Old Testament because it had the weird stuff. Now, actually, and this is usually the case, as Jesus will show, they weren't playing fair with the Bible they had left. Now, I think we would be hard-pressed in our day and age to find people who have decided their only authoritative scripture are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But we do have the same tendency towards a canon within a canon. We do have the same tendency to try and throw out the things that we don't like because they seem intellectually unsound or intolerable to our sensibilities and then minimize our canon. And probably the easiest way to illustrate this, although it's not the only one, are red-letter Christians who say the only things that are authoritative in our lives are the words of Jesus. Paul Peter, they're just fallible human beings like the rest of us. They get it wrong. Those things don't carry weight. Or you may be familiar with those now who are saying, uh, the Old Testament is not Christian scripture. We just need the New Testament, and the Old Testament should be avoided and ignored. It's not for us. 
do you see this morning that in Jesus' answer we have a direct and specific application right from the New Testament, right from the red letters? When Jesus says here, you err not knowing the scriptures, he's not talking about the ones that Mark will write down that contain his words. He's not talking about any piece of the New Testament at all. He's talking about the Old Testament. Jesus consistently and regularly appeals to, illustrates from, and demands the authority of the scriptures as being God's authoritative revelation on what life is like. And let me remind you, that is the only reason why we can make guesses or have understanding or talk consistently about things that are intangible and unknowable to us as human beings. If all the Bible is, is just speculation of humankind looking up at the world, looking up at God and saying, this is what God must be like, this is what the world must be like, then we have tremendous limitations, don't we? Why talk about life after death at all? It's just a mysterious veil that we all pass through and none return from. How do we know what's on the other side? But if the Bible is what it consistently and regularly claims to be, in the books of Moses, throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, in the words of Jesus, and across the preaching of Peter and Paul, then it is not speculation from man's point of view, here's what we saw God do and here's what it must mean, but God saying, this is who I am, and then doing stuff and saying, this is what I just did and here's what it means. It is revelation and not speculation. And that just changes the ballgame. That's why Jesus can say confidently, you're wrong. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, that is not a significant enough case for you to trust what the Bible says. But if you're going to test the hypothesis of Christianity, you have to test it assuming the structures of Christianity, and it assumes that Scripture is the words of God through the personalities of men, and not just men describing who God is or what he's done. If you start in that wrong place, you ask the wrong question. And so Jesus challenges this, and uh, and he does it by appealing to the Scriptures and their authority in our lives. Now, he says, you're wrong not knowing the power of God of the Scriptures. And then he says something that actually is super interesting. Look at verse 25. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, none of you this morning can quote to me the chapter and verse that Jesus is paraphrasing there. At the best, he's making a biblical implication. Okay. But actually, I would suggest to you that he's doing something even more significant than that. He's speaking authoritatively apart from scripture. In in the Gospel of John, Jesus basically says, I can speak confidently about heaven because I've been there. I'm the one who was sent from above, therefore I can tell you about above. Right? In the same way here, he speaks not just as a man who honors and values the scripture, but God incarnate who knows the plan. And notice what he says, it's super weird. He says Also, your hypothetical doesn't make any sense because marriage is temporary to human life. Now, as a Western culture, we actually get that and we express that all the time. It's in our vows, till death do us part, 
right? But that's not coming, side note, not coming from a secular worldview that believes that death is the end of all things and therefore severs all relationships. It's actually from this idea right here. That Jesus, kind of shockingly and surprisingly, says, no, actually, it's going to be different in heaven. Marriage comes to an end. He also shows, I think, a significant flaw in human perspective, which is that the only way we can judge the future is as if it will always be as it is right now. Now, even when I've talked with non-Christians casually about the idea of an afterlife, usually what they find unsettling about it or silly is that they're taking life as it is and just extending it into the future indefinitely. And that inevitably becomes silly. But we should also recognize that when Jesus says this, it makes us go, okay, wait, I thought Christianity had a very high view of marriage. I thought Christianity was very pro. I mean, isn't the very first commandment given in the entire Bible to be fruitful and to multiply? And when that's described in the following chapter in Genesis chapter 2, isn't it therefore a man shall leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? Isn't God's whole agenda connected to this idea of human marriage? Isn't the love between a husband and a wife one of the most significant things that we value in human life? How is it that it has nothing to do with the future that is to come? I want to just draw a couple of points from this. The first... And this is really interesting to me, but when the Bible does talk about what comes after death, when it does talk about the eternal state, especially when it talks about heaven, it says more about what, it's, what is different than what is the same. Okay. It says more about what is different than what is the same. For example, if you read Revelation 21, which is probably one of the clearest pictures we get of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth, where it's described for us. Even though I think it is significantly described in metaphorical language, underline how often it says no. There was no sea. There was no temple. There was no sun. There was no sin. There was no pain. There was no crying. There was no death. Over and over again, there is a drawn-out emphasis of no, and Jesus adds to the list here. Also, there will be no marriage. Now, like I said, we, we tend to look at these things and assume continuity, but the Bible demands discontinuity. Jesus says here, you've, you've misunderstood what marriage is about. Marriage is passing. It's temporal. It's temporary. And then it will come to an end. It'll move on to something else. And like I said, when you read uh, in Revelation 21, you'll find a whole lot of other things that were set up by God and established. Take the temple. By the time we get to heaven, there is no temple. But how significant, especially in the Old Testament, is the temple? But here's the thing, and this is, this is why the idea of resurrection is so significant. It is discontinuity of transcendence. Okay, and I'm totally making that phrase up, and it's a little bit loaded, but I want to unpack it. What I mean is the reason there is no or no or no is because there is instead something else. 
Now, if we were reading in Matthew's gospel, side note, this conversation with the Sadducees we find repeated in Matthew and in Luke. If we're reading in Matthew's gospel, it is very surprising to hear Jesus say that heaven there will be no marriage. Because at the beginning of Matthew chapter 22, where we find this story, he starts telling a parable. Now, if you're not familiar, the parables of Jesus are like uh, illustrations from the world as we know it of the things that we don't know. They're spiritual truths couched in physical realities. Okay? So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a field to a people that understand farming. Okay? But what's interesting is at the beginning of Matthew 22, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. And it's not just that place where he says, if you want to understand where all things are headed, what God is doing, what heaven is like, you should think of a wedding. He does it his whole ministry. He identifies himself as the groom. John, the forerunner that Matthew mentioned earlier. Matthew the pastor, not Matthew the gospel. John the forerunner, John the Baptist that Matt mentioned earlier. He said, I rejoice that Jesus has the people because I'm just the best man at the wedding, but he is the groom. When we get to the end of Revelation, one of the ways that the new heavens and the new earth is described, John says in Revelation, and I saw new Jerusalem descending from heaven like a bride adorned for its husband. Which is it, Jesus? Is heaven a wedding or the end of all weddings? Transcendent discontinuity. Basically, what Jesus is suggesting here is that marriage serves its purpose on earth because its purpose is to signify something that is to come. The temple is the same way. Theologically, what is a temple about? Okay, now, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, if you're just a religious studies major and you look at temples across religions, you would say this is the place where people gather to worship. And that's a good assessment of of the biblical idea of a temple as well. But there is a deeper idea. The temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle before it, is the place where God dwells with his people. Right? When you look at the tabernacle, it's set up right in the midst of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness, and it is filled with the very presence of God. In fact, it is so full of his presence that sinful, average human beings can't be fully exposed to it. So there's a sacrificial system to make it work. So there's divisions between the courtyard and the holy place and the most holy place, right? There's a need for blood to cover sin and washing to deal with uncleanness and all of these things because God is present in the midst of his people. And it's the same with the temple. Solomon dedicates the temple, he speaks and he asks God to bless it, and then suddenly God comes down in such a way that the priests are driven out by the presence of God and can't even do the sacrificing. Why will there be no temple in heaven? You see, that's the other unique trait of a Christian view of heaven. You see, most religions and some philosophies have a view of an afterlife, and most of them are built, like I said, on some form of continuity. So, for example, if you take Islam's view of heaven, it does not annul marriages. It actually improves upon the sexuality of this age. Mormonism does not annul marriage, but actually sees it as a significant way to install you in the best version of heavenly possibilities. 
But in the same way that we as Christians no longer have a temple, and this is not the place where God's presence is, this is the place where God's presence is and his people. We're moving towards a time where a temple will not be because a temple is no longer necessary. Here is the other trait you will see if you read Revelation 21. What is it that defines a Christian view of of heaven? It's that God is in the midst of his people. Why is there no sun in heaven? Because the Lord and the Lamb will be the light. Why is there no temple? Because God is right there in the midst of the people. We won't have to go to him. We will be with him forever. In my house, Jesus said, are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place so that you might be where I am. And in the same way, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that there's a correlation between a husband and a wife and Christ and his church. That Christ is like the husband and the church is like the bride and that Christ is working towards a union and an intimacy. And so after Paul gives advice to men and women, he quotes from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And he says, brothers and sisters, this is a great mystery. But this verse speaks of Christ and his church. Marriage is a built-in testimony picture, personification, sign, but our union with Christ is the thing that is signified. Marriage is the shadow, but the reality is our relationship with Christ. Marriage will no longer be necessary because it will have served its purpose, and it will be replaced not with something other, not with something different, but something that transcends it entirely. Here is why uh, a vision or a view of an afterlife is important. Because every good we taste in life is tainted, unsatisfying, limiting, unfulfilled. Again, let me go to the idea of temple. Let me go to the idea of presence of God. Jesus promised us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. But are we always aware of that? Do we always feel it? Do we feel the distance and the lack? Those of you who are married, you know that it comes with sweet joys and very true difficulties, heights and depths. And no matter how great and how deep it is, you will always find yourself somewhat dissatisfied. C.S. Lewis paradoxically says that this is the heart of what joy is. Joy is touching something and not finding the thing itself and finding in yourself a longing for something greater. But to put it another way, in the words of C.S. Lewis, he says, God has designed the road back to home with many inns, all of them good, but none of them so good that we would mistake them for home. When we look at life as it is, we go, this isn't what it should be. We ask the question, is this all that there should be? We say, this is it? And Jesus says definitively and fully, no. And this is true on every level. We are called to as human beings. We are responsible as human beings to strive for and aspire to justice. Will we find it completely pure and without dilution? No, until the resurrection. Until the consummation of all things, until Jesus is fully what he is partially now, King of kings and Lord of lords, with all under his feet. 
the resurrection is the closing chapter of the story that God is telling in history. And without it, there is no meaning to human life because meaning is constantly scrubbed away by evil, by wickedness, by tragedy, by sin. But Jesus promises not just a permanence, not just a continuity, but the fulfillment, the fulfillment of all things. And that's the thing is, even though he's challenging the Sadducees here and he says, you're wrong, I don't think he's, his agenda here is you know, to, to just condemn their belief system. Look at what it says at the very end here. He says, verse 27, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You were quite wrong. What do you hear in that very wrong there? I'll tell you what we normally see in Jesus. It's concern. And it's not just that it may rob them of heaven. It's also robbing them of life now. The Sadducees had embraced, like many in the first century, a proclamation you may have heard, because sometimes we say it as well, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he said, the way heaven and earth is, is that if you shoot for earth alone, sorry, I should do it in the right way. He's such a better writer than I am a thinker. He says, if you shoot for heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you shoot for earth, you get neither. Okay. A heavenly perspective of the reality of things shapes the joys of this world because it shows us where they point and it shapes the contours of the lows because it shows us those longings won't go unfulfilled. It changes the way we live our life now. It doesn't create an absentee relationship with the world as it is that sits on our butts and waits for things to be fixed, but a very active pursuing of what we know will one day be, but in a way that we can navigate failure in a way that right now we as human beings are really suffering from. Because if we put all our eggs in the basket of this life, in our government, in our politics, in our career, in our fame, in our success, in our romantic endeavors, when it comes crushing down, so does life itself. Now I want to show you what else he does here. He, he points out, he makes this clarification, but then he goes to the scriptures. And like I said, he smartly does something uh, in the fact that he doesn't go to the books that they don't hold, but he shows that they've actually misread the books that they say they hold. Okay. And actually, I would say the same thing to red-letter Christians. The reason I believe in the authority of Scripture is because of the words of Christ. The reason I believe in the value of the Old Testament is because of the words of Christ. They err not knowing the Scriptures, and I'm not talking about Daniel, I'm talking about Mark. And so he smartly says, all right, let's talk about Exodus. And he doesn't just pick any random passage. Have you ever done some study into a hard question in Christianity and it's just some completely outdoor verse you've never heard that seems like it's being drawn out of context and whatever it's about, it's not about what they're talking about, even if it might illustrate it? That's not what Jesus does here. He goes to proverbially the very heart of the Pentateuch. When God shows himself in the burning bush, reveals himself to Moses, it's the beginning of Israel proper. It's the beginning of the covenant. And it's where God identifies himself, reveals himself as a person, and says, you want to know who I am? I am the I am. It's that passage that he turns to. Okay? And so notice, he turns to that passage, 
And he says this in verse 26, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, Moses, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Okay, now, here's the point that Jesus is making. It, at a glance, this is easier, it's just not completely dead on. It, it reads like Jesus is making an argument based on tense, right? God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am. So if he's present tense, so is Abraham. Abraham is still present. The problem is that Hebrew grammar and Greek grammar doesn't actually work that way. And so although we translate that way in English, you couldn't use that argument in Greek or in Hebrew. It's something more significant than that. It's that God chooses in his great identifying as the pre-existent one, as the one that is cause and not caused, the I am. Also as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's he doing in the context there to Moses? He's connecting what he's going to do with Israel with the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the significance or the value of those promises if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob no longer exist? What does it mean if God is faithful to his promises but after there's no one around to see it? The point that he's making here is that the entire Old Testament implies a living future for those God addresses. And that's what even the Pharisees got right about the Old Testament, is that it does not come to its consummation and fulfillment. It's missing its final chapter in God's agenda and his plan. If there is no resurrection, now let me add one more thing here because it's important. That word resurrection means bodily. It means physical. Jesus here doesn't downplay the idea of a disembodied uh, uh, heaven, you know, where we're just floating spirits, because it, it goes against the grain of even the Old Testament. The Old Testament never envisioned a harp playing souls escaping from their body reality. That's Plato. That's Aristotle. That's Greek philosophy. Okay. But it also reminds us of something here. Okay. which is, again, continuity and discontinuity. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, we'll find people who don't believe in a resurrection, and this time it's not the Sadducees, it's the Corinthians, people who call themselves Christians. And Paul challenges that, and he says, this is the heartbeat, the center, the foundation of what we believe as Christians. He says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised, you're still in your sin, and you're damned forever. If the dead are not raised, then you'll never be raised, and you are living death. In fact, he says, if the dead are not raised, then we of all people as Christians should be most pitied because our whole life is banking on God finishing what he started. But then he goes on and he says, I think the reason you're making the mistake is because you go, well, what type of a body will I have, and what will it look like in heaven? And he uses an illustration I find helpful. He says, have you ever planted an acorn? An acorn and an oak tree have the same identity, but different bodies. Okay. You will be identical, the same person for eternity. But you will not have the same body. This is implied in this idea of resurrection. There is still discontinuity here. And the reason why I am hammering it right now is because our bodies are part of what it means to be human. You've never met a disembodied human being. I don't care what paranormal show you watch on, on HGTV, okay? 
Our bodies are a part of us. They are significantly a part of us. And God has a destiny for your body because that's the way that he made you. But Christianity without a physical resurrection is no longer Christianity. And we have to watch out for the way that platonic dualism uh, and this kind of disembodied spiritualism has invaded the church. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about flesh and blood transformed. Just like the Bible actually doesn't talk about heaven as being this cloudy reality, but the new heavens and the new earth, the world as we know it, transformed. Okay? But I want you to just hear his closing sentence again. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the Bible refers to God as the living God, that is the foundation and the fulcrum of all his promises. Because he's present, he's active, he's powerful, he's eternal, and he's living. That's where all human life comes from, from the one who is life, who gave life. But it is also the significance for our lives today that shapes not just our eternal destiny, but our here and now. Because when you pray, you pray to the living God. And God is not the God of the dead, because he's not a dead God. Because he's living and active, because he's working now in our lives. And the thing is, and this is always the case when we play with canon when we limit the scriptures, when we come up with ideas that are beyond the pale and then edit Revelation to fit our thing, what we do is we start to pull a thread and we never realize that it unravels the entirety. And that's the problem with the Sadducees. In losing the resurrection, they had lost the living God. And so what they had was a moral system that might provide ethical guidance that may lead you in life, but they had lost a living Savior who could actually work and do and be and challenge and speak. And Christianity is nothing without God. Here's the best part. Jesus didn't just tell us about resurrection. Just a few days after this, he rose from the dead. Why do I believe in a resurrection? It's not just because of this passage in the book of Exodus or even this passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's because of the witness of the early church that Jesus was alive, embodied, scars in his hands, eating fish at the table, present and alive after his brutal death. And that same one said, just as I am, you will also be. Revelation is two parts for us as Christians. The word of God and the living word. The word who became flesh. I think the challenge for us this morning is if we approach Christianity for the first time or daily in our lives, the challenge is always to let the living God speak and let the one who is I am shape our understanding of reality or shape it ourselves. And when we do, inevitably and entirely and eventually, we shape reality without God. And that's not just wrong. It's totally despairing. Let's pray.
Father, our religion, our doctrine as Christians are shaped by hope. Not only is the promise of your return and the setting of all things right recorded in every single New Testament book except two, both of which are only a paragraph long. Not only is it referenced over 300 times across the 27 books of the New Testament, but it is the lens through which everything else is seen and through which everything else makes sense, Lord. We need the ending of the story to make sense of Christianity. And Christianity alone makes sense of all things. I pray, Lord, that you would protect us from the error of the Sadducees that starts with our own abilities and even our own abilities to imagine and ends up with an imaginary God. I pray instead, Lord, that in humility, with open ears, that we would take the posture of Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, that we would open the scriptures and we would wrestle for sure and we would doubt and we would struggle because that's how we learn, but that we wouldn't come with predisposed answers that are written in stone and say, unless the Bible conforms to my truth, then I will abandon it. You are the potter, we are merely the clay. You are the I am. We are the ones who are not without you. Every breath we have is in your hands. Every brain cell you gave us was a gift. And the best thing is, Lord, you don't just give us the truth. You give us the gospel. You don't just give us what's right. You give us what's good for us, what's holy, what's beautiful, what's better. And a big part of that, Lord, is this destiny called the resurrection, where all our longings are fulfilled, not because you give us the things you want, but you give us the things, the things we want point to, which is ultimately and always and completely you. You are the fulfillment of all our desires. Continue to help us align ourselves to that, our desires to that, to process our greatest joys and our deepest despairs to the reality that the best is yet to come and the worst that we experience will pass away. And help us to carry this type of message to a world that feels all of the pain and the suffering of the question of death and does not yet know the hope of the living God pray that you'd help us with all these things in Jesus name. Amen. As we respond now in worship, 